We'll be looking at several scriptures, but we'll read initially from 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse number 6. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord, the save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, look back here. Behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Then said Jonathan, Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. If they say thus unto us, Tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, Come up unto us, then we will go up. For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. And both of them discovered themselves under the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they have hid them, had hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up, climbed upon his hands and upon his feet, and his armor bearer after him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer slew after him. And the first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about twenty men, within, as it were, and half acre of land, which is which a yoke of oxen might plow. Heavenly Father, we, we beseech you for the, the, the faith that we see in these two young men. We pray that we might have the boldness to attack the, the enemy in accordance with your will and your word. We pray that we might have the sword of the Spirit in our hand and the spirit of the sword within our hearts. We ask, Lord, that you would direct our considerations this evening, strengthening us in the inner man, that we might be better equipped to serve and glorify you. We ask these things in our Savior's name. Amen. You may be seated. We've probably all heard about the adrenaline junkies who climb sheer cliffs rock faces, just for the ability to say, I climbed this thing and I got to the top for the thrill of being there. And then there are more rational people who do exactly the same thing for serious reasons, say soldiers or something like that. Sometimes the beaches of Normandy have to be assaulted because there is no other way to victory. And that is what we see in the scripture for this evening. I've given you a little capsule, capsule of that so far. In our ongoing study of practical faith, I'm trying to find examples that we can apply and duplicate. There is a great example of faith in this biblical account. In fact, there are two great examples the title of our message relates to the second, a friend of faith. Again, 
despite the centuries between Jonathan's day and our day, the parallels between us are uncanny. We begin with the deplorable condition of Israel at the time. When we go back to chapter 13, we're told in verse number 1 that Saul had been king in Israel for two years. What took place in chapter 12 was during Saul's first year, and now we're coming into the second year. The State of the Union address that January may have expressed some hopeful or ambitious points, but the actual condition of Israel was abysmal. Please recall that Israel had been ruled by the Lord for decades. He had chosen his own under-shepherd, shall we say, had chosen his own servants, men like Moses, men like Joshua, more recently Samuel. But he was in charge. He told these men what to share with the rest of the nation. But as Samuel aged, Israel decided she wanted a king so that she could be more update, more like everybody else. Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Well, God's prophet, Samuel, was highly offended. But the Lord told him, don't take this personally. This is not about you, Samuel. For years, throughout the, the wilderness wanderings before Joshua ever came along, these people rejected God, rejected God, rejected God, rejected God, and they're doing the same thing still. It's not about you, Samuel. It's, it's all about uh, their rejection of me, and this is just another downward step. At this point, let me draw a parallel. What if we liken Israel to the Lord's churches in these days in which we live. In my lifetime, I have seen, personally known, good biblical churches which have deliberately chosen to forsake the pattern that they find in the book of Acts and to fashion themselves like the modern world in so many different ways. They have told their pastors Make us into a church like the other denominations so that we might be able to compete in a modern society. Sadly, one of the results of that philosophy, one of the events that takes place going in that direction, is spiritual powerlessness. Chapter 13 ends with information about the toothlessness of Israel's condition. It came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan, except for Jonathan, except for Saul and his son. They, they had swords. But everybody else had no weapons. The Philistines made sure of that. Israel was defenseless. They didn't have a prayer, physically or spiritually. The sword of the Spirit had been cast aside. Their religion was Bibleless. Their worship was spiritless. 
their lives were without any divine direction. Blame might be thrown upon a number of different areas and reasons, but whatever, that was the condition of the people who were supposed to represent God before these Philistines. Furthermore, what if we liken Israel's king to the modern church pastor? If I was somebody else teaching this lesson, I might not like what I am going to hear. But let's just be blunt and honest. The reason why many churches, most churches, lack revival is because of their pastors. Israel is looking for a king so they wouldn't have to directly look into the face of God. If we had a pastor who is head and shoulders above everybody else, then we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. Remember, Saul was a big, tall guy. Israel refused to put the Lord first, and so they ended up without the blessing and without the power of God. Israel's pastor Saul took credit for whatever little tiny good thing that took place. Leaving no room for anyone else. Leaving no room for God. If there was a good Sunday, it was because the pastor was all fired up that day. And if someone was comforted or blessed, it was because his psychology was on point that particular day. Notice verse number 3, chapter 13. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land. What a great day this is. We've had a victory over the garrison of the Philistines. Let all the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines. I'm not going to say that Saul had a public relations team that was deliberately mutilating the truth. But it was not he who had smitten the Philistine garrison. And he did nothing to quell the misinformation. He was willing to take the credit for it. But he was doing that in other areas. In the meantime... Jonathan's little victory that day provoked the Philistines to anger. And Israel was also had in abomination with the Philistines. So they, the Philistines, gathered a huge army as the sandwiches on the seashore in multitude. In the light of a probable Philistine attack, Saul fled for his life from the, uh, the highlands north of Jerusalem down into the uh, Jordan Valley, setting up camp at Gilgal, which we looked at last weekend. They ran away. Satan had a field day. The men of Israel forsook their homes, perhaps neglected their families, and they ran off out of fear for the enemy. The Israelite society had become 
Philistine society. They had become worldly, certainly had nothing from God. They were empty. They were powerless. Then with the vast army of the ungodlies up there on the, the, the bluffs above the, the valley, glaring down at them, Israel panicked even more and began to desert. The people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets. They were no longer the people of God, testifying of the Lord. And some of the Hebrews went over the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. Israel had become powerless and useless in the great work of magnifying God's name. And I will put the blame on their leader, Saul. At some point, Samuel, God's man, sent word that in seven days he would come to encourage the people. Tick, tock, tick, tock. With the setting of each sun, the people were becoming more and more fearful. But God had put a muzzle over the teeth of the Philistines, and Israel was perfectly safe. The Philistines didn't come pouring over the cliffs down into the valley. They, they were content to sit up there. At apparently 7 a.m. on the appointed day, still no Samuel to be seen. Maybe it wasn't sun up. Maybe it was toward sundown. But at that point, Saul took it upon himself to usurp the office of the priest and to burn or to sacrifice a burnt offering and a peace offering unto the Lord. And then finally, with the smell of the burning sacrifices still in the air, Samuel arrived. What hast thou done? Saul replied, Well, you weren't here. The people were scattering, so I forced myself and offered a burnt offering. I picture in this the pastor who for a hundred different reasons, laziness, worldliness, maybe he's got a secular job that he doesn't need to have, various kinds of sinfulness. This pastor is not a good spiritual leader for his people. I see him approaching the Lord's Day once again, with nothing solid or spiritual to share with his congregation, I see him throwing together a sacrifice of a few well-worn scriptures, not depending on the Lord for the message, because he is empty of the Holy Spirit. And this is something that goes on week after week after week. And yet he believes he's doing God's work. Blessing, or sharing God's blessing on the scattering congregation who's not sticking around to hear what he has to say. No wonder the people are running and hiding. They're weak and starving. They're defenseless. Everyone knows they need the blessing of God. 
But the man who should access and share those blessings is as empty as everyone else, despite having a sword hanging on his uh, uh, waistband. Samuel told him in a very understated way, Thou hast done foolishly. Could have been a lot meaner than that. Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God. And he told the king that God had begun taking steps to replace him. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. One who will do his will, God's will. You are done, Saul. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But because of your sins, you're going to be nothing but a footnote in the church minutes. What should Saul have done at that point? When it's obvious that the pastor is no longer God's man for that church, what should he do? I suppose he could repent and plead with the Lord for forgiveness and restoration. He could surrender to the Lord and strive once again to be a blessing to the congregation. Or perhaps he should just resign and leave the door open for God's replacement. But we see none of these things in Saul. In fact, if the dates which Mr. Usher gives to us about uh, ancient history, if those are accurate, Saul remained a useless, worthless king for another 30 years. Here's where so many churches are in our day. I'm talking about good churches. I'm not talking about the apostate churches, but the churches of Revelation 2 and 3. It was Jonathan who defeated the Philistines earlier because Saul wasn't there. And as a result, the nation is, is rapidly deteriorating. When they needed an infusion of power and a vision and the blessing of God, they have Saul to be their king. When the When there were Philistines to be defeated, when there were Rahabs to be won, Saul, as David says later, was only wasting his time pursuing after a dead dog, a flea, rather than doing what he should be doing. It is in the midst of these circumstances that we see a delightful example of sacrificial, (coughs) practical faith. Jonathan was one of the few bright spots in the entire nation of Israel at that time. It was Jonathan who defeated the Philistines in chapter 13. Later in his relationship with David, we see that he was a totally selfless man. Didn't think about himself. He might have said with all sincerity, he must increase, I must decrease, and that's okay. Like his friend David, Jonathan couldn't just sit around and hear the name of Jehovah dragged through the mud. He had to do something. He couldn't sit there. 1 Samuel 14 and verse number 1. Now it came to pass upon a day 
that Jonathan the son of Saul said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side of this ravine. But he told not his father. Jonathan was one of the young converts in the congregation. And he had a good friend who was even younger than he. Jonathan recognized the spiritual poverty in the the nation of Israel, and he chose to address it. What would have happened if he'd gone to his father telling him, I would like to go over there and fight with those Philistines? He would have been grounded and sent home to his mother. But as I've said, the things of the Spirit are highly personal. The pastor doesn't necessarily need to know that a couple of young people are meeting together praying for him and beseeching God for the fire that might fall from heaven. No one has to know that someone has chosen to go out into the community door knocking or is meeting with the residents at a senior citizen home in an afternoon just fellowshipping with them. Or a group of ladies or a handful of retirees might, behind the pastor's back, meet at Starbucks for uh, Bible studies and share with other customers there the blessings of God. Jonathan steps out on his own. Meanwhile, we have Saul sitting under a pomegranate tree. Verse number two. While his nation falls apart and God's enemies infest the promised land. Oh, but he had Ichabod's brother with him. And that man is wearing a religious ephod. Going through the motions of religious service. The glory is departed, but the religion's still intact. They have church services every Wednesday. And three times on Sunday. But nobody cares because the Lord is not among them. Why isn't Saul under a gnarly oak tree on his knees instead of sitting on his bottom eating pomegranate fruit? Why why isn't he pleading with the Lord for divine power? Why isn't he going to Jonathan and saying, Son, come with me. We're going to attack the garrison of the Philistines. Isn't this what a leader should be doing? Getting back to Jonathan, I see a young man filled with the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Let us go unto the garrison of these uncircumcised lost people. Where did this idea originate? From where did it come It wasn't from his father. And listen to his faith. It may be that the Lord will work for us, but there's no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. This is bold, practical trust in God. His father might have explained it away. It's nothing but the impetuosity of youth. But it wasn't. This wasn't a death wish. This wasn't Jonathan's desire to go down in history of some sort of hero. And it wasn't without forethought. He had thought it through. If this takes place, we'll do this. And what about this? 
He had, he, he, I will say that he had prayed over it. If they say unto us, tarry until we come to you, then we shall stand in our place and will not go up unto them. Now we'll still fight them when they come down. But if they say thus, come up unto us, then we will go up. For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand. And this shall be a sign unto us. When I started looking for a lesson for this evening, a lesson on practical faith, I was first struck by the faith of Jonathan's armor bearer more than I was in, in Jonathan. He was a true friend of faith. Once again, we have an example of the infectious nature of someone else's trust in the Lord. Jonathan, Jonathan could see what the Lord was going to do. And he confidently shared it with this young man who was his armor bearer. Immediately the younger man said, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee. Behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. This other man was willing to risk his life based upon the faith of Jonathan. That faith was spreading. All it takes is one young person who's on fire for the Lord. And that can reach another. But what if it had been Pastor Saul instead of Jonathan? The sun fired up another young man. But if the king had that same kind of faith, it would have perhaps ignited the entire nation and the Philistines would have been history from that point on. When God is in control of a situation, surprising things, miraculous things can take place. It was miraculous that the foolish Philistines said, why don't you guys come on up and we'll show you a thing or two. Jonathan and his friend essentially had to crawl up that steep slope on their hands, pulling themselves, feet digging into the ground behind them to get to the top. At any point, the enemy might have showered a blizzard of arrows down over the top at them, and that would have been the end of things. But the hand of God held back the hands of the archers. Here we have faith in action. We're going to do battle with the Philistines up there, and we're going to be victorious. I have all confidence in God. Jonathan and his friend climbed up to a flat area at the edge of the cliff, and then the enemy permitted Jonathan to draw out his sword. What? What fools those Philistines were. They generally are. Then several Philistines confidently approached. These two Hebrews are toast. They approached, but one after another fell under Jonathan's sword, and the armor bearer applied the coup de grace. The fight grew in intensity as more and more Philistines realized that they were outmanned by these two Hebrews empowered by the Lord. About 20 of the enemy lost their lives in a relatively short period of time. In some circles, that would have been considered to be a great victory, but really, it wasn't. This is just the 
drop in the bucket. Because at that point, the Lord shook the land. The earth quaked, and there was a very great trembling. And the watchman of Saul, over there on the other ridge, could see the enemy beginning to run, beating down one another. After the faithless segment of Israel began to become engaged in the fight, the Philistines were driven back from Michmash all the way to Ajalon. There was a great victory that day, far more than just 20 men. There would not have been any victory at all if it wasn't for the faith of Jonathan and the reciprocal faith of his companion, who, by the way, is unnamed. We don't need the fame. If we're interested in the Lord's glory, we don't need the name. There would not have been any victory if the congregation had been left to its human leadership. There would not, been, not, would, have, there would not have been any victory if God had not stepped out to defeat the enemy. Not only are there parallels between that day and ours, to my mind, the similarities are obvious. I want to be in the midst of the Philistine garrison. Pray that I don't become or return to the kind of leader that Saul was. His day was over. He had sinned away his opportunity to serve the Lord. It was becoming the day of Jonathan and David. But it always was the day of God. The Lord can still rout the Philistines. We still need him to rout the Philistines. We can be that Jonathan that this day greatly needs. Or we can be Jonathan's companion. There is nothing impossible to God when he is given a couple of people with great faith, trust in him.